Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Henry Selleck. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. I believe there's some people here to see you also. Um, so we're going to get to Coraline. Um, but I um, wanted to talk a little bit about some of what unites a lot of your work. Um, it seems that you are quite interested in this idea of, let's say, different worlds that connect in some way. I wonder if that even goes back to your work um, prior to, say, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, and uh, I'm curious especially about that hotbed of creativity, um, CalArts, and those initial years. I think there's... Whoa, that's loud. Um, there are some um, common themes, things I haven't noticed till they've been pointed out to me. Um, but in... in Sometimes in the earlier films, there were simultaneous short films like Seepage, which I started at CalArts, then finished uh, with a grant. Simultaneous worlds existing, um, only sort of connected. They talk about each other. So, so I, you know, I, I am definitely interested in different ways of looking at things, different versions of a character, um, you know, transformations. And it seems like the, the utilization of different styles of animation or filmmaking to signify those worlds is something that you've been doing for quite a while. Um, yeah, yeah I've, um, I, I've, I've often been restless and wanted to mix uh, styles. James the Giant Peach has live action bookends in the middle of the story or two thirds of the way through it. Uh, James has this Nightmare, and I went with cut-out animation. Um, funny thing, though, like Nightmare Before Christmas in Coraline, we kept it pretty much pure um, stop-motion animation throughout with some uh, effects and things enhancing. Yeah, and I think we'll talk about some of the ways in which you did convey visually and perhaps more subtly than in the past with the use of wildly different styles, um, those two different worlds. Um, you mentioned um, uh, that that work at CalArts. Um, I think you, you studied with Jules Engel, is that uh, initially, who was uh, the, the, the experimental animation? Uh, yeah, I was. Um, I think I, I'm one of only two people who were ever in both animation programs at the same time. They had a uh, more traditional character animation program. Um, everyone who went to that got a job. Uh, mainly at Disney, but other places as well. And then there was Jules' program, Experimental, where you, you saw more world animation, uh, different, you know, a lot of puppet animation from uh, Eastern Europe, um, uh, Canadian film board sorts of things. And, and, and so uh, I've always sort of danced between those uh, two programs and the rest of my life. Yeah, it kind of shows. And then uh, Glenn Keane, um, and again, going more into the traditional side, it sounded like... 
you were adopted by both of these camps and, and were left to put all of this together. I think I was considered a suspicious character in both camps. Um, but when, when I was doing the experimental, I, I went to school and I ended up working with a lot of people who gone on to be far more successful than myself. Um, in the character animation program, the only two people from that who would come to visit the experimental just to check it out were Brad Bird and then finally John Lasseter. His curiosity got the better. Aha. Uh -huh. So if you're in film school today, there's a lesson to be learned here. But um, uh, in then choosing where you go next, though, uh, you, went, you went to Disney. I didn't really have a master plan. Um, you know, there was that summer, do I stay in the rock and roll band or do I go back to college? And I went back to college. I only discovered, I'd been interested in animation, but I only discovered um, animation. And going back, I was going to Syracuse University. I went to two schools before that. I was really spending a long time, but I took an animation course, found out about CalArts, went there. I really imagined I was going to just make short movies and wasn't worried about you know, paying for them. I was an idiot. I, then I needed a job. And well, the best job in town is at Disney. Now I can't, I can't draw those characters like those other kids can, but, um, they taught me to do it. So it was, it was a really hard right turn for me to go there, but it was also a great school an incredible, uh, school for drawing every day, trying to get what's in your brain out on the paper and learning some of the, their classic, uh, staging ideas. Um, how to convey things silently. Um, so it turned out to be a great move. Well, and we see this in, uh, you know, you're a great storyteller, but there's a kind of tempered surrealism that, that is uh, in, in almost everything you do. Um, uh, speaking of other worlds, uh, how did you get to Slow Bob? And uh, um, I don't know if uh, people are familiar with this, but it's one of, it, it, I don't know when I saw it or why I saw it. Maybe it was on MTV, but it, 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 uh, it, it was memorable um, at, at the time, and either was or was not a series, or maybe it was a series to be that, wa that, that wasn't. Yeah, Slow Bob was a short pilot. Um, yeah, I went to Disney, and I, I worked with some very exciting people, and some of the old guard, a couple of the nine old men were still there, and they taught me a lot. But the films that they were making at the time were the worst. Uh, you know, I worked on The Fox and the Hound, this terrible Christmas special called The Small One. Uh, Don Bluth directed. Oh, boy. I, you know, I worked with Brad and, and uh, you know, this guy. So I made good friends and Tim Burton and all that. But the films were not that great. So I left to go to the Bay Area. And while I was there, this is um, the 80s, late, late 80s, I started doing a lot of work for MTV. And I kind of, it was like going back to CalArts. It was these uh, station IDs, interstitials. Uh, mainly stop motion, sometimes some drawn animation or pixelation. But I got to do what I wanted as long as I stuck the MTV logo on the end. That led to Slow Bob, which is my proposal for a series. Um, it's like a, I can't remember, seven or nine minute. I don't know, um, just it's a mix of some live, some animation, different techniques. And, and it, I was like right on the, the, the verge of doing that as a series and they were ready to go when Tim Burton called and said, you know, I, I, I want to get that nightmare going again, and do you want to direct it? Okay. So the, the slow bob's been dormant for over 15 years. Yeah, maybe it's a... Well, we're, 
it is it's uh it's on youtube i mentioned before so um but it should it, don't uh, watch it there yeah exactly i'm gonna put out a dvd i'll give them out for okay. free okay so how, how many will take the dvd if he uh, spends the few days to get it together okay there we go we have a market um speaking of uh nightmare before christmas so that so it was a jump right into this how did um was this a, were you having a conversation with tim burton over time or did he is this completely out of the blue? Hey, it's your old friend Tim from CalArts. Uh, I kept up with Tim for the first few years, but he, you know, he went right into live action, which is really his, his, his greatest strength. And at a certain point, he became an untouchable. Um, but we have a friend in common who's actually uh, Tim's uh, former creative partner, and they still work together sometimes, Rick Heinrichs. He's the guy that first sculpted a Tim drawing and saw, you know, convinced him, hey, this stuff would look good in 3D. He also convinced him to do stop motion. Vincent, uh, that's a film they did together. So Rick was there, and we stayed friends throughout. So he was the emissary to bring the news, but I had to fly down to L.A. to hear it directly. Well, it's, it's such a... The, the vision that's part of that film that it actually is a combination of two people who obviously share that vision. Um, uh, it's, it, it, it's such an enduring film today. Um, uh, it did, did moderately well when it came out. Um, but it, it's been re-released, I guess. Uh, there was but it a, was so cheap. It actually did double its budget, moderately well, but then it became this cult thing and five years ago Disney finally decided to call it a Disney movie rather than Touchstone well Disney had to evolve into it I, I, I would guess um, and uh, they're were, they were of course lucky to have it and um, it, it seems to be the, uh, just the, the perfect realization of a, what is a, a traditional stop motion animation technique I'm not sure if there was much in terms of integrating digital at the, at the time um, but give, give me a sense of the scale of that production. And what I'm going to want to do is fast forward then um, uh, a little later to Coraline and to see how, how the process has evolved in, in between these two times. A nightmare you know, began as a, a simple idea that Tim had come up in, I don't know, early 1980s, proposed as a half-hour uh, TV special, sort of in the vein of Rudolph um, or, you know, Frosty the Snowman. It just, but it was too strange for Disney. Um, they, but they owned it because he was working there, and so it was sort of put away. Um, when when Tim came into his great success in live action and could get it going again, there really wasn't so much more than that. It had to be grown into a story. Uh, Danny Elfman is a huge part of what works well in the film. We actually we started to make the movie, started shooting it. Uh, before there was a finished script, we had a few songs and a sense that we'll figure it out. Uh, the head of story, meaning the head storyboard artist, was this brilliant guy named Joe Raft, who um, went on to be head of story at Pixar. Okay, James the Giant Peach did many incredible things. Um, the, the funny thing about it was um, I'd grown this small team of people. You know, I did my MDVs, I started alone, then I hired a few people, then I did a bunch of commercials. All those people just got deputized, became supervisors on Nightmare. Our mission was, hey, make a stop-motion feature. We were so happy and excited to be making a feature film. We had no fear about it failing. We didn't care. Um, 
and yes, it was very traditional. Almost all effects were done in camera. There wasn't, there literally wasn't, you know, digital post-production at the time. There's um, a tiny bit of CG animation, snow that falls, looks really cheesy in the right sort of way at the end of the film, um, is, is CG. Uh, but the best we could do for fixing things, you know, Trey Thomas, one of the, the world's greatest stop motion animators, but he's really rough on the sets and puppets. He kind of wrestles them around. We took out a couple of those Trey Thomas bumps and posts. That was a that was a breakthrough. Um, the phrase "rough on the puppets" has now ingrained itself in my head. Um, with James and the Giant Peach, you began to experiment with a, some uh, CG combined with um, uh, stop motion, and, and in addition, you framed the movie with live action. But it, se- it seems like it's heavily stylized, and if anything, the live action environment seemed to adopt certain uh, approaches that come from the work you're doing, you did with stop motion rather than the other way around. Rather than try to simulate with stop motion perceived reality, it seemed like you were going the other way. Uh, yeah, we probably went a little too far. Joanna Lumley, who played one of uh, James's wicked aunties, uh, she screamed at me one day and said, I'm not one of your puppets, Henry. I didn't know they didn't want me to tell them how to move and what poses to strike. Um, but I, you know, I got, I got, I got used to it. I gave them some breathing room. Um, yeah, we uh, live action bookends, and then there's some CG, a, a beautiful ocean, uh, this uh, mechanical shark monster, and um, this great uh, CG supervisor Scott Anderson who, who, who did that and made it very easy for me artistically to integrate it. Um, way back in 1995-96. It's that, that long ago. Um, uh, we'll get to this question of endurance later, but uh, again, I caught my kids watching the film just a few days ago. Um, y- this seems like you could, have adapt- you could have adapted some of this to the Wes Anderson film. Uh, I don't believe it was a shark, uh, but in terms of uh, aquatic life. Will you describe how that all came about? Um... Yeah, I did another film. It wasn't successful. I went down a slippery slope, um, a film, Monkey Bone, that was meant to be much more animation, maybe about the mix of James. It just, um, I went Hollywood, and that, oh, you're hiring this actor. Well, he needs to be in the whole movie. Um, uh, but the animation in it, the, 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 some of the stop-motion characters and, and Monkey Bone themselves are actually some of the best stop-motion work ever done. Wes recognized that, and Wes came to me Six years ago, I guess, when, when he was um, doing The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, and he wanted to do old-fashioned stop-motion uh, creatures, undersea creatures, um, which I and a small team of people created and, and shot. And it did include a, a giant uh, jaguar shark, um, which was... How, how big was the actual... Well, it was, it was gigantic for stop-motion, and Ray Harryhausen came to visit, and he was so happy, he almost cried. Seven feet long. Take that. Um, and uh, around then, I guess, uh, the, the journey of Coraline began. Um, you've been working on it, I guess, since this, uh, 2001, 2002? Um, yeah, the, journey, the Coraline journey began before the life aquatic, which um, was kind of a godsend. After, after uh, Toy Story came out, it was basically impossible to get funding for stop-motion films. The world had changed. 
Um, it was no longer sufficient to make a profit. People in the film business, they, they want to make huge profits. And, you know, Pixar happens to have maybe the greatest story team in the world. So it wasn't just that it was CG, but it was CG combined with great storytelling and directing and design. Jeffrey Katzenberg always won to compete. He had, you know, he finally found his uh, style of filmmaking with, with Shrek. So he was also up there. So there were a number of years it was difficult to get any um, stop motion work done. Neil Gaiman sent me the pages to Coraline, um, not quite finished in the year 2000. Uh, I wrote my first draft for it in the year 2001. And it, it took from that time until, um, you know, four years ago to get a, you know, to find this, the right studio and the right distributor to back a scary stop motion film for children. Well, and, and for the, brave children. And uh, although maybe there's a resurgence, uh, having just seen where the wild things are, hopefully there's something happening. Um, and perhaps the very same dynamic that made it hard to get these films funded might, as it matures, create an opening for these very same films. Um, the visual style of, of, of Coraline is just uh, amazing, and I, we wanted to show a little bit of that before we started talking about uh, about going behind the scenes in the film, um, and especially the the idea of evolving uh, the story through uh, color, through uh, uses of perspective and uh, stereoscopic imagery, um, as well as changes in the characters themselves. Um, so put on your glasses, and uh, we're going to watch uh, a bookended sequence of the garden before in the real world and after in the, what do you call that world? Other world. Other world. Here's the other world.
tell you something. Mother said you like it. Glasses off. So, for now. Um, so, obviously, there's a sharp contrast between the drab environment that we first saw and this magical world. Um, explain how you played off of that and, and, and the, what you did with color and uh, other devices to create that difference. You know, in this, uh, the usual kind of fantasy thing, a better version of your own life. The grass is always greener. Um, we wanted to use all the tools to differentiate these these worlds. In the real world, um, this is a place Coraline has just moved to. She's not happy. Uh, the whole film kind of reflects how she feels. So in the real world, uh, until the very end, she's the only strong color in the entire real world. She has her blue hair. She has her yellow slicker. Um, you know, other other bright clothes. We wanted her to be like a beacon of color. And then, you know, when she goes to the other place, it um, it's not so much about... By the time you get to the Magic Garden, when we're like cranking up the magic, there's, there's all kinds of color. But initially, it's just subtly different. We actually... Um, she goes through a little door, follows the mouse down this tunnel that expands into deep space and 3D... Um, she comes out in what looks to be the exact same room she left, but it's actually a, a, a whole different set that was built much deeper, much larger. The space itself, as captured in 3D, um, was to reflect this sense of freedom and uh, you know, just a lack of con constraint that she felt in the real world. So we actually shaped spaces differently to make the real world feel um, they're, they're at very little depth, the sets are, are all sort of crushed with raked floors, walls, and ceilings. Um, we're shooting with longer lenses for the most part. So we, we, we actually shaped the space differently from one world to the other because there's versions of almost everything, the, the real garden, the other garden, the real kitchen, other, and, and so on. So it, it's a combination. The sound um, in the other world, the sound comes into the surrounds more. Just as the world is deeper and has more room, uh, the soundscape also surrounds you more. Uh, so basically every, every tool we could to make it appear to be a much better place until it's not. And then we take that 3D depth, that experience, and start to bring it out more to the screen to make it more unpleasant. So this, this does stand in contrast to you know, a lot of the comments I've heard uh, filmmakers make uh, about the 3D conversion of their animated films, um, uh, which is your, normally, well, we had nothing to do with that process. We're just making the movie, um, and then it's made into 3D, and they, they, they don't have much to say. Um, uh, often, I think, uh, the history of filmmaking has uh, these wonderful moments where something done for the purpose of marketing or to save money is used uh, perhaps in a way unintended by its makers in an extremely uh, exciting, creative way. And it seems like you really got into this. Um, you knew from the beginning this would be a 3D film. Um, one question I have, just 
not sure how it works. How are you creating the two perspectives that we're seeing, in a, in a, that, that you need, the two different photographs per frame that enable the 3D to happen? It's, um, it's actually pretty easy to, uh, to shoot in 3D. It's hard to do it in a post-process um, uh, because, because 3D you know, is based on our having two eyes and our brains making uh, three-dimensional images from that. It's, but the distance between your eyes is called interocular distance. And um, when you're working in a world that's uh, of this scale, you can't get cameras small enough or lenses small enough to get that interocular distance of uh, you know, a half inch that Coraline has. So ultimately, we just we captured everything digitally. They're all still cameras because these, you pose them and take a picture, pose them again. We moved the camera. So the camera was on a tiny motion controller. And um, it's very precisely, but you, the animator would move the puppet and then it would shoot left eye, right eye. It would shift back, move the puppet, left eye, right eye, and, and, and so on. A single camera and then moved slightly. And yeah. based on the scale of the imagery, it would have to move a different distance, right? Um, based on well different, different lenses, it turned out to be <laughs> all these charts, all these uh, batteries of tests, and then eventually got to the point where, <coughs> excuse me, where we just knew what was, what was right. But by shooting it that way, um, we were actually able to change the interocular distance during shots to uh, create a sense of dread, to change your feeling without the obviousness of the famous Alfred Hitchcock uh, dolly zoom. Um, it, was a great, it was a great tool. We actually tried that once with this 3D but um, it, it made our uh, eyes bleed, so <laughs> we didn't use it in the film. Well, thank you for not making our heads explode. Um, but uh, it, so at some, so it's sort of at a subconscious level that that sense of relief and that, that the breathe the breathing that you feel that the scene makes when you move into that other world that's all done through this technique. Um, I'm, I'm curious also about other things that we don't see in the film. Um, that are happening behind the scenes that'll that create what we see. Um, the let's let's talk about the characters. Um, and those of you who are in the field, it, please excuse these questions. Um, and because uh, you already know this, I, I would assume um, posable figures uh, don't have posable faces. How do you create the facial expressions on the characters and the mouth movements? Some of the characters do have posable faces. All the fathers. Um, Spink and forcible for the most part, um, and those and those are it's one way to do animated faces. There's like basically a little metal skeleton face underneath with a jaw that works, um, metal paddles for brows, uh, lip paddles, and then there's like a silicone skin that's put over that. So that's one style for Coraline, uh, for Jack Skellington, for Miss Spider from uh, James the Giant Peach. Um, we use replacement faces. It's something that the guy named George Powell invented in the 1940s. So ra rather than have to push and, s and struggle to get snappy, strong expressions, each expression and every in-between is a replacement object. Uh, we used to sculpt them all by hand. Um, in Coraline, we sculpted sort of key expressions and scanned them into a computer, which then printed out in a rapid prototype machine all these in-between faces in plastic. There's 3D printers now. And then we, you know, painted them and trimmed them and 
you know, use those to uh, give her a, a much greater range of expressiveness. We also split her face, you probably can't see it from the back rows, into an upper face and a lower face. So that by, by doing her eyebrows separately from her mouth, you get several thousand possible expressions. Isn't she lovely? Um, how, how, in terms of numbers, I would assume that that means, let's say with Nightmare Before Christmas, the character Jack had a certain amount of heads, <laughs> faces, and uh, I would assume that Coraline has a heck of a lot more. What, what, would, what are the numbers? Um, I don't know. It's a Jack, uh, it's, it's hard to remember sometimes. I've got a bunch of his heads in this case, but about 120 to 150 different expressions on Jack. We were popping his entire head on and off. So, so if he just wanted to raise one eyebrow um, or raise one eyebrow and say something, those had to be separate. With, with, with Coraline, we needed much more nuance. She's got eyeballs with pupils, um, eyebrows and so forth. Uh, how many actual it's, – it's probably uh, you know 200 upper brows and up to um, 400 – lower mouths and um you know the special smiley face her default skeptical expressions you know um you know when she sticks out her tongue and blows a raspberry special lips things like that and and she persists throughout the film of course in both of these worlds has very much the same you mentioned that before um Gravity is the other question I had. Um, there's a lot. There's there's a lot of stuff flying around, and it doesn't seem tethered. How do you do that within stop motion? In Nightmare, we um, did it all with this stuff called spider wire, uh, which supposedly doesn't photograph. And then you know you would attach a character for jumping in the air to that, and then fly them with an overhead rig that's off camera. Um, but since then, with with digital clean up you shoot a clean plate a background and if a character has to jump you just stick a metal rig some kind of a mechanical arm that attaches to him that also has to be animated um i really love to to show uh the uncleaned up version of Coraline because it's not just the characters being animated it's these rigs that suddenly pop on and they're being animated a character like bobinski who's top heavy and can't really support his own weight a lot of the times, he often has to have a rig that just travels with him. Um, and then, you know, it's all cleaned up in post. Okay, well, I, I, I foresee a display at the museum we'd love to have, which would be a, a split screen of the two. Um, and maybe the finger puppet version of the, the film as well. But, no, it, it's, it's quite instructive to see um, uh, because there is a lot. This, these are real things. There's a physical process behind it. Um, what I want to look at now is the uh, more on the character end, um, the character of the mother, um, uh, and uh, how it how she transforms through the film, um, and also the environment of the kitchen, which you see very clearly um, in the real world and in the other world. And the difference is quite interesting. Uh, having I do recommend. Uh, I assume everyone has seen the film. If if you have, see it again. Uh, the DVD comes with glasses, by the way, which is great. But um, I'm not sure how that works on a TV. No. No. 
Okay, so that's just watch the two D. So that's that's marketing, and and you haven't found a way to creatively uh, misuse that at, at this point. But um, okay, I didn't didn't play with glasses. But what I, one thing I noticed is the mothers, the other mothers, butt got gradually bigger, and uh, <laughs> throughout the as a, it was a spider basically in the back, and her, her, uh, yeah, her abdomen. <laughs> okay, um, and many many little touches that really. That this is my son's word, by the way. Many um, little touches that you don't notice the first time around. Um, so, with that, please don your glasses and take a look. Are we showing the enlargement of the other mother's butt? It's in there somewhere. Like what? They're cocoa beetles from Zanzibar. I want to be with my real mom and dad. I want you to let me go. Is that any way to talk to your mother? You aren't my mother. Apologize at once, Coraline. No. I'll give you to the count of three. One, two, three! What are you doing? You may come out when you've learned to be a loving. So I do have to ask, uh, aside from the questions about craft, um, uh, no, the clip was, uh, this will save for a little bit later. However, I do know the words, and I could sing along. Um, thanks. So uh, re you don't say rewind anymore, but whatever you do. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Is that even reboot? It's, it's uh, ho hopefully not. Um, these this tale of uh, I think it all it finds a place in all, in, in all of us where we you know, cry out for attention uh, f from our parents. Um, I, I'm just wondering, in, in your experience, both as a as a child and as a parent, have, was there something that you were, were you able to draw from this uh, 
was it something that um, you were attracted to as a story? I was attracted to the story uh, not so much for a personal connection, uh, just that I like this combination uh, that Neil did of, of a kind of an Alice in Wonderland, what seems to be an Alice in Wonderland story, uh, you know, following a hopping white animal through a little opening to another world. Um, but instead of discovering the Wonderland, it's uh, like falling into a Hansel and Gretel snake pit. It's, you think it's one sort of film or one type of traditional uh, uh, wonderful story that, that becomes more of a brother's grim tale in a modern setting. That's, those three uh, mm. elements are what attracted me. And uh, I, I do, I, the author, Neil Gaiman, did come out with this, I think, uh, partially because of, uh, he sort of was inspired by his own daughter, who would come to him while he was writing. And, uh, he would say, not now, and uh, turn that into something uh, tremendous. I wonder how your own kids react, uh, you know, looking at the uh, age appropriate, I think people say eight and up. Um, but I'm curious as to how your own kids reacted to this. Um. Well, I will fill you in on a little something that Neil and I both uh, share about the film. That, that um, the, the lesson is uh, um, it might be that your parents who don't seem to have enough time for you are the ones that actually love you, while the people that seem to have too much time for you might be the dangerous ones. Um, you know, we were hoping, we're hoping to uh, get some love that way from our kids, even if we can't be there for them all the time. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the main question. That, uh, no, it's that, I'm taking that home with me. Um, speaking of questions, I want to try to get from some from you. Um, uh, does anyone have something to uh, to ask over there? This question was about the three, how one was able to view in, in real time what was being recorded in 3D. Uh, we, we couldn't do that. It was very frustrating. We did have our own 3D screening room. Um, but in edit, we couldn't view it in 3D nor on the set. Right now, though, Avid, which is still kind of the, the top edit system uh, for most features, they have a 3D system so you can watch it in the edit room. Because the, the, one of the most difficult things in, in shooting 3D is, is cutting. It's, um, it changes the rules. Um, you, want to, you, want to work, uh, you want to work with the 3D the best. Um, so it was, it was often very difficult to get single shots, look at them in the screening room, and then put them, <coughs> excuse me, put them to, together. Um, so, yeah, it was a frustrating experience. And just as we completed the film, Avid came out with their 3D edit system. Anybody else? Yeah. Of the many, many, many challenges you face, how did you deal with This question was about the challenge of the dissolves from the real world to the other world. Um. You know, we we wanted to feel. I, <laughs> unlike the book, I wanted it um, 
Quellen makes more visits to the other world. I wanted them to appear to be dreams. So specifically, she's put to bed in the other world, and you pull back, and we do these dissolves to um, real world, um, and you know, to give that sense that maybe it is just a dream. We we had um, sort of charts. The sets were built with uh, similar lines of perspective, even though the other world was built much deeper. The colors were different. Um, we just had sort of these sim simple charts and the, the camera move, we did a match move. And um, they're not perfect. They don't line up exactly, but we planned well enough that it, you know, conveys the idea. And, and that portal that she walks through seems, seems to have been designed for a very specific purpose. It's that transition from a 2D to a 3D world. Um, there's something quite... Uh, memorable about that. I hear you mentioned Lenny. I mean that old dryer exhaust tube that we stretched out <laughs> with a little blue color. And you know, it's, it seems like it's a reference to s something you may have seen before or a device that's been used in other films. Or, you know, um, the, it's not spinning, but it may as well be. Well, you know, the main point of that was that I, 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 okay, we're going into the 3D world. I wanted to suddenly put like a hole in the screen. Because everybody goes the other way. That Normally when you think 3D, they start throwing things out. And we do that two and a half times in the movie. But this was meant to be that Alice in Wonderland like falling down the rabbit hole um, shot. And that is the one where we actually experimented with not only um, stretching the tunnel back and increasing the 3D, but we also tried <laughs> that dolly zoom. Uh, th effect, which was just too much. It was too intense. Yeah, right there. The question is about a stage version of The Nightmare Before Christmas. What a great idea. Um, I mean, Disney likes to capitalize on any success they have they're you know in it for the business and um yeah i think i think that uh tim tim wouldn't agree to that but who knows it's it's it's, it's possible and i guess they can't do it without him um the um uh, i believe it was the the musical number in nightmare before christmas by the way there was there was a movie that uh, I will never forget called The Forbidden Zone. I'm not sure if you're with Danny Elfman sang, oh, yeah. sang yeah. a version of Minnie the Moocher. And I just wondered if that sequence was in any way inspired by that because it just seemed so uh, A, Elfman-esque and B, Cab Calloway-esque. Yeah, I think, I think that, um, you know, da Danny, the original um, Oingo Boingo band that, that he had that, that, that had, had a good run of success was originally called The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo it was sort of a larger group, and his brother directed this film, Forbidden Zone. Uh, I think Hervé Villachez is in it. It's, it's kind of crazy, strange sets and very much like Betty Boop cartoons. Um, it's, just, it's just an area that Danny likes to go, uh, the Cab Calloway thing, and that's sort of the, the idea behind Oogie Boogie, that song, and, and that world. So it was, in a sense, built around him. Uh, yeah taking off from, you, you mentioned musical numbers that existed before the film. I guess that was... Yeah, that, I mean, that, that in particular, uh, that song is inspired very much by Cab Calloway's uh, style of songs. And, and you know, the, those songs that were used in the Betty Boop cartoons, 
where Cab was rotoscope transforming, his head turning into a bottle of whiskey, and so forth. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, I, I had neglected to show the very last clip because of uh, the fact it was partially shown. If we're ready, I, uh, speaking of music, I would like to, uh, to play that. Hello, Coraline. Want to hear my new song? My father can't play piano. No need to. This piano plays me. But... Tell you the food's ready. Mmm, who's starving? Raise your hand. Oh, <laughs> All right, so uh, just wonder if anyone knows uh, who, uh, which two voices I guess you heard uh, behind the uh, the father. Um, it's just one. Oh, it's just one. So it is John Hodgman. No, it is another John. It's another John. Um, yeah, yeah. Talking to the water, it's not working too well. <laughs> it's um, John Linnell of They Might Be Giants, and it's They Might Be Giants who did the song. And we recorded John Hodgman 50 takes because <laughs> he really wanted to do it, but the fact is John Linnell's voice sounds so close to his that why not just go with a guy who can do it like falling off a log? That's great. And, and yes, it was indeed John Hodgman, Hodgman uh, who he's a PC, I guess, in his uh, other life, uh, who voiced the father so, so well in the film. But in real life, he's a Mac. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and also he's on The Daily Show. Um, uh, another question. Uh, okay, let's, people who haven't asked yet. Let's weigh in the back first and we'll work our way down. Um, yeah, there's, there's a project that, that will continue at Leica. I moved up there to first do a short film called Moon Girl, but brought Coraline with me and, you know, got to make it. So they, they were a great company to, to support a uh, scary film for kids. Focus, our distributors, were fantastic. They came aboard as well in order to get the green light. Um, but having finished that, um, I'm returning to the Bay Area. I have several projects um, in sort of pre-pre-production, it's very difficult for me to choose which one to go forward with. One will be another collaboration with Neil Gaiman based on a really cool older book of his. Um, the other is something original that I've actually been working on in the background for 15 years. And um, I've shown it to people that they like it. More of a, more of a cousin of, of Coraline, I'd say. A dysfunctional family. 
a curse, balance of power, um, and then the others, another book adaptation. But Leica will continue. They're, they're doing um, a film called uh, Paranorman that is uh, the brainchild of uh, my head storyboard artist on the, on the film, Chris Butler. It's a, it's a pretty funny story. That's, that'll be their next film. That was the end of part one. Part two, a conversation with Henry Selleck following a screening of Coraline, begins now. There hadn't been a really a full-length stop-motion animated film done with 3D. So what was, when was that decision made and what was that like? You hadn't uh, worked in the 3D process. You'd certainly done stop-motion. Um, yeah, this is the first stop-motion shot in 3D, although there was a, there was a post-process that's uh, actually quite effective, done on Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, it came out like a year before we were, we were uh, going to be finished. Um, what's it like? I actually have a long um, history, not of doing 3D, but of an early exposure. The guy, uh, Lenny Lipton, who's one of the pioneers of 3D, 20 years ago I shot this uh, low-budget 3D rock video for the Viewmaster Corporation. <laughs> the little wheels that still are pretty magical. They wanted to get into new media, and it was Lenny's system, two black-and-white video cameras that we used. And then uh, UMass realized, well, there's no way to show these. What are we thinking? I was asking you, where, you know, where, where were these shown? Like, rapid-fire Viewmasters? Uh, with, well, know. they hadn't quite figured that out. But, but I met <laughs> Lenny, who's a genius. And, yeah. then, and then I would, you know, every couple of years, I'd check in and see um, where he was at as he, as he was developing his, his system, which is, is what now in you know, the theaters as one of the foremost uh, uh, theatrical digital systems. So I got that early exposure. Back on Nightmare Before Christmas, there was a few 3D hobbyists who would shoot stills, and you'd see that you know, through the special viewer, and you'd, you'd realize that we're not really sharing the greatest strength of stop motion, which is that this stuff is real. Yeah. These really exist. Right. And, and so um, how do you develop the, the look of the film? It, it, it works on so many different levels. Like one thing I was appreciating tonight, because I've seen it a few times, is just how exquisite the lighting is. I don't think I've seen an animated film that has so, such beautifully nuanced lighting. But that's just one element. You have all the texture of the, of the rooms, the atmosphere. Uh, it wasn't easy for anyone on the film. <laughs> uh, the director of photography, Pico Zacek, and his... Uh, very talented team. Pete's a guy that goes back um, to a short film I did a long, long time ago called, called Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions. And Pete, Pete and I have worked on almost uh, everything I've done. He's been the DP. This, this was different, though. We wanted um, something a, a little uh, different looking than Corpse Sprite or um, Nightmare Before Christmas, a little more nuance, a little more delicacy, to uh, a little more psychology in, yeah. the, in the lighting, in the color. And the art, you know, we're contrasting these worlds. We didn't want to hit you quite over the head. And is there a lot of testing in the beginning? Do you try out different looks? I mean, because once, once you commit, you're in this for, you know, a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, the shooting uh, the shoot schedule was 18 months to shoot this. Uh, that doesn't include the pre-production and, and the post. So three and a half years, basically, for uh, some of us. Um, yeah, there's a certain amount of testing. I worked with this, this really uh, talented conceptual artist, Tadahiro Uesugi, a well-known Japanese illustrator who's basically inspired by late 50s, early 60s American 
illustrators. And so uh, the color palette, a lot of that comes from him, some of the costume design. Um, it's sort of, you know, what, what Coraline represents is, is uh, everything I've ever wanted to do sort of brought together. So there's no, like, one, one thing to point at, and it all came from there. It sort of came from the Fellini films and the, uh, yeah. you know, Harryhausen and the rest of it. <laughs> Harryhausen was real. Was he really your first inspiration that you might actually do something? I know you watched Harryhausen films as a kid. Did you have any inkling that you would actually be doing that? I didn't really. I, I didn't really. Um, I wasn't one of the kids who like went and got the, <laughs> the the Hollywood monster magazines to figure out how it was done. I, I didn't have access to that in New Jersey where I grew up. Um, but yeah, I, those were some of the first films I saw. I think the first film was Son of Voyage of Sinbad. So I didn't know that I wanted to do that, but I knew that it was one of the most powerful things I'd ever seen. Those monsters were, were real. They existed. I didn't, you know, whether they were crudely animated or hokey stories, it was beside the point. It was a type of magic that wasn't, it didn't exist in the other types of animation. Yeah. Now, you said three and a half years sort of involved in the project. What is it for you that, like, hooks you and says, this is, this is going to be worth it? I mean, because I, I, I think it pays off, like you said. It has so much in it. It has all the sort of classic elements. It feels like a little bit of Alice in Wonderland, a little bit of Wizard of Oz, but different than those. Um, but what is it sort of in the content of this material that makes you say, okay, I'm going to just spend the next you know, four years of my life working on this? Uh, the underlying material is, is quite wonderful. Neil Gaiman is a fantastic writer and a good friend of mine now, um, but he wrote the, the short novel that the movie's based on. And you touched on one of the key elements. It's sort of an Alice in Wonderland story, but when she goes down the rabbit hole, uh, she ends up falling into a brother's grim world. <laughs> What is so, that vacuum hall made of? It looks like a like a, a duct, um, like you know, that for a dryer or something like that. Sort of a. Uh, yeah, it kind of <laughs> looks like that. <laughs> it's a little it's a little fancier, but it's basically <laughs> I wanted something that stretched into deep yeah. space to give the sense. Okay, we're in this one world, but now there's a rabbit hole into another place. Yeah, but the twist at the end, what you're saying is that it's not exactly a wonderland. It's a it's there's a reversal at the end. <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of a Hansel and Gretel thing. Yeah. And it's, um, if uh, we, somebody were to go to your soundstage during production, what does it physically look like? I mean, how big are, how many different sets are there? Like, how, how big are they? You know, what are they? What, what I found is um, whatever size warehouse we rent to do one of these things, um, we fill it. Uh, <laughs> And I think we rented a space that was a little too large this last time. It, uh, mm. So it's, 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 it's big, you know, 100,000 square feet. And, you know, we have at the peak, at the end, way more stuff going on that, than I've ever had to deal with, 30 active sets. Now, some of the sets are not much bigger than this table, but one of the sets, which is um, three sets connected, like when she's running down into the orchard and ends up uh, at that little stump with the mushrooms, 50 feet long. Hmm. Um, so there's all sorts of scales and sizes. It's very much like live action, step motion. Um, real lights, real sets, real props. But instead of the army all focused on getting one thing, it's divided into 
lots and lots of small teams. So it's about, you know, basically every set is at some stage of production. A pre-light, um, we have stand-in puppets. <laughs> and uh, they can't do much, but they, <laughs> they serve the purpose for, for lighting and camera tests. And then there's a pose through, and then, and then sometimes a rehearsal where we go right to a, a shot. So there's like many, many plates spinning at once. And everyone has this idea that, oh, it's slow, it's tedious, but not for the director. Yeah. I'm, I'm like a surgeon uh, going on rounds um, in constant motion. It's, it's an exhilarating uh, time to be in full production. How many um, Coraline puppets were there? Uh, we budgeted for seven, <laughs> but uh, it turned out she's in every scene of the movie. Yeah. And uh, at the end, we had to make some more. Uh, we, we, we ended up with 20 separate Coralines. Some were a little more elaborate than others. Um, we had uh, a tiny Coraline uh, for some of the widest shots. Um, but every, every animator in the film had to animate Coraline and try to make it feel like it was the same girl. What I'd read was that there were over 200,000 possible facial expressions for Coraline. How, how was that? Is that oh, true? <laughs> take <laughs> off a it? couple of zeros. I, okay. I, I, I think yeah. it's... I think it's uh, you know, to have 2,000 is, yeah. is, is plenty. Okay. Um, so that was a little you know, hype, yeah. yeah, yeah if, if, you, um, if you go back to Nightmare Before Christmas or stuff I did earlier, like the old Pillsbury Doughboy, <laughs> um, there's this, this process invented by a guy named George Powell in the 1940s, replacement animation. So instead of squishing clay or figures around, you actually have different sculpted expressions, complete heads. We, we needed Coraline to be much more expressive. Uh, we made a decision to split her face so that her eyebrows, everything around her eyes, can be uh, animated separately. Different sculptures from, the, from all the mouths. There's a lot of, of different mouths, a lot of upper, and it's multiplying the two. You get thousands and thousands. But she, she is you know, the most expressive character um, in, a, in a stop motion film in terms of mm. variations of facial expression. And, and how, what, were you, what was your thinking in terms of distinguishing the two different worlds? Because they're, they have to be sort of both alike and different at the same time, and there's a lot of um, subtlety in how you achieve that, because you, know, you don't do it in a heavy-handed way. It was, it was um, very challenging. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're... It, it, we, we tried to... Ultimately, it's the story is the guide. How does, how does this... Um, how does the 3D... How does color... How does camera movement... How does lens choice, uh, every single element was sort of adjusted. But many of the sets, you know, there's the real world, there's, there's the other world. And, and initially, it almost seems exactly the same. But, um, for example, the, the, the living room in the night when, when Coraline follows that little hopping mouse through there and she comes out into what looks like the same exact living room, it's, it's not the same. It's built really deep. There's all this added depth to that room so that in 3D you get this sense of spaciousness and everything else was sort of adjusted in, in, in the same way. We did a lot of lock-off shots, the real world, kind of medium uh, to longer lenses. Things are flat. The sets are actually less, has, have less depth. It's um, the only thing of color in the real world of any significant color is Coraline. She's like a beacon of life right. and energy until she gets to this other world where it seems like home because there's more of that. 
Are you, it's such a difficult process. Are you able to sort of ever sit back and enjoy the film? I had heard you say that it actually takes you a few years before you can like really just kind of watch the film without, I don't know, with some distance to enjoy it. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm very, there, there's, there's some scenes that I, I loved when we made it. I, I love now, the, the, the Magic Garden. Um, yeah. You know, when, when Coraline kind of makes her parents out of pillows. Um, but what I found, you know, going back to Nightmare, James the Giant Peach, for a while, all you see is what you could have done better, the things the audience clearly didn't understand what you intended, and you can't, it's too right. late, you can't <laughs> fix it. So, yeah, give me five years, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'll, I'll uh, love every frame. <laughs> uh, I'm going to open it up in just a minute to the audience, but I want to ask you about the music, because it's, it's just one of the great elements of the film that's so beautifully expressive um, and so important to the film. I'm, I'm very happy with... Um, uh, the work of Bruno Coulet. Uh, this is his uh, first American film. And it's just sort of luck and hard work to have found the perfect composer for the film. You know, you throw up a lot of temp music from other films, and it was surprising, but nothing, nothing worked. Nothing seemed to mm. capture um, the essence for me of, of, of true childhood uh, you know, it was either too sugary or if we right. were going for something scary, it was much too dark. And we, we just, we all bring in our soundtrack albums and someone happened to have uh, Microcosmos and then I wrote in Wing Migration and um, it's just, just a, you know, a perfect uh, fit. It's sort of playful and menacing at the same time, which is probably hard to, it's hard to pull off, but this just does it perfectly. He uses chorus, you yeah. know, um, and, and you hear a lot, it sounds like kind of, is that French? It's actually, it's all nonsense words. It's just sounds that he, that he chooses to sort of get, you know, an emotional response. And th this is one of those weird coincidences, but there's a soloist um, who sings, uh, you know, in, in two of the songs, you hear a voice, and her name is uh, Coraline. She's French, and it just was a fluke. And that's when we realized we've been pronouncing it wrong all along. <laughs> Before I forget to ask, and then I will open it up, because um, I'm not in the know myself, so who is Jerkwad, or what is Jerkwad? If you're not in the know, I'm afraid well, you I'm, I'm to... going to stay that way? <laughs> okay, I'll remain uh, not knowing what that means. But um, right over here, and I'll repeat the question. So. Uh, what was your happiest moment during production? What was your okay, What was your happiest moment during production, and what was your saddest moment? Wow. <laughs> um... I think probably many, many happy moments, but, but one of the happiest was um, when we, we got our first Coraline puppet made and started to animate her, and I felt I believed in her as a character. She was very difficult to design, um, to get her hair right, to get, to get the, the set of her eyes, to make her imperfect. Uh, so that first animation test of her was, you know, a, a great... A great thrill. Uh, saddest, um, I don't know. Uh, no, no tragedies. But um, honestly, when it when it ends, everyone else is hugely relieved. But um, I'm 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 very sad when when we wrap up. It's you know you get all these people together from around the world, and you're finally at that point. Everybody's making the same film. You're a, you're a well-oiled machine, and then the plug gets pulled. The thing you said about Coraline that, um, like, making her believable really rings true, because she, she has this sort of perplexed 
look on her face and you really feel her thinking and that's and then you realize this is just like an inanimate object but you capture like like the feeling of her thought process that, that was the intention <laughs> okay right down here Okay, how do you put your team together and what kind of person does it take to work on your film? And I'm, you probably have a resume, I'm guessing, but, uh, but answer the question. Well, I mean, it, it's, um, for Coraline, it was, it was uh, a mix. Um, approximately a third of the people were folks I'd worked with on everything else I've ever done, going back to before the Nightmare Before Christmas. So back in the late... 80s when I was doing stuff for MTV and started to hire on people because I couldn't do it all myself. Virtually all those people grew into the, 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 the team that led uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So a lot of people will come back for a good project and these stop motion films are still pretty rare. A third of the people were international. Um, a lot of Brits, uh, Canadians, um, and then you know, a great uh, lighter from, from Germany, a, a, a incredible New Zealand uh, animator um, and some of the f folks I was, I, w I was aware of and then, and then a third of the people we did made this in, in Oregon where Will Vinton's uh, studios a long tradition of uh, claymation which really is stop motion with clay um, so it was one third locals one third international one third people I've always worked with and they'll be back I mean it's um, if, the, if, if, it's a, if it's a good project something a little edgy or something not too safe, um, people will upset their families and force them to come. <laughs> and then they can show their families Coraline so, the, the, so they can realize that it's okay to ignore your kids for a little while to do your, to do your work, right? Uh, that's uh, Neil and I have, <laughs> have a, a saying, you know, the, the, the people who pay too much attention to you as a child might be the ones that don't have your best interests at heart. <laughs> not like your workaholic parents who really love you the most. I like that you work with Ronald Sanders. I'm a fan of his because he's cut all of David Cronenberg's films. Um, and how did he, so how did he, you get involved with him? Um, he cut the, edited the movie. Yes, what, what, I, what I've, I've learned to do, um, you, you know, you do work on these things a long time. You, you make the film twice. You make it once with story boards, story reels, just pictures that represent every shot. And uh, I, I worked with a, a, a great editor, um, first film during all that process, Christopher Murray. But when we're in the, uh, halfway through production, I like to bring a heavyweight person with a fresh eye. And uh, James Seamus of, of Focus um, had this connection to this fantastic uh, Canadian editor, Ron Sanders. And, uh, you know, we enticed him to come visit and, and get involved. Um, he's great. He's brutal. Unbelievable. No, no, he doesn't care how hard it was to do anything. Um, in, in terms of like, you're losing a shot that we spent three weeks on. Well, I don't care. It's hurting the movie. Um, very dry, but did wonderful things for the film. I mean, that's what you need. You need someone who doesn't care how, how much it might have cost you to create something. He's, he's there to help make the best film possible. Does a lot wind up on the cutting room floor? Because you're, you're, you know, it's not like you're shooting from different angles. Um. No, I mean, there's, there's um, one complete scene that had to go. The animation was spectacular, and then lots of, lots of bits and pieces. I don't know, five minutes? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Not like, it's not like live action where it's a 10 to 1 ratio. Right. <laughs> that would kill you, probably. Uh, right over here. Hi, congratulations. 
Thank you. Uh, well, I'm sure some of this stuff uh, doesn't end up in the floor in the kind of room anymore. It ends up on the DVD as an extra nowadays. And they never put it all out the first time because they want a now with increased extra the special. deluxe edition Two set, years yeah. from now. Lysergic, like LSD? <laughs> yeah, in okay. terms of... Uh, okay. Yeah. That's not imaginary. Okay. So the, this will be uh, like more uh, gothic and, 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 and twisted and more uh, psychological, uh, thriller, uh, twisted better. My question is, uh, thinking about, uh, talking about taking this, uh, were you worried that you were on the right balance instead of something uh, of doing something that is for kids and the sentence is scary? Were you like worried that, oh, maybe this is too washed out, it doesn't make sense, and this is too scary? Okay, in terms of, so the, qu I'm going to uh, simplify your question, but in terms of the tone, um, the, you know, this is designed for kids to see, but it's scary, um, you know, in some ways, um, enchanting, and ha but were you worried about finding the right tone, or was it difficult to find the right tone for the film? You know, I, w I wanted to end up dancing on that edge between those two places of, of, of safety and, and deep fear. Uh, the, there's something about this project. I first got the pages from Neil before the book was published back in the year 2000. And, and his book wasn't published until they knew that, oh, there's going to be a movie made. We set it up with, with Bill Mechanic initially. Um, and they felt, well, maybe it's not too scary for kids or, you know, is it scary enough for the older ones? We've always had that exact problem, always. It took five years to get the right to find a studio to 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 um, support this, uh, mm. like as studios and and the right distributor focus, who believed it wasn't about okay yeah we, we know you make pretty pictures but you got to change everything because that's everything I heard. We got the right support, but throughout the process it was always a dance. Is it falling off the edge um, one way or the other? I, I wasn't worried about it being too sweet. I, I think it was it was that overly dark. We wanted some real... Uh, I wanted to ramp this film up and then never never stop. But genuine scariness is such an important part of so many like great children's films. It's like something they have to go through. We all love to be scared, including little babies. You go peekaboo. It's, yeah. it's a thrill. It's a thrill to be scared and yet you're not injured. Hey, I'm still here. It didn't kill me. It's it's a great desire, and it's there in all the the old Disney films. Yeah. And most people, you know, when they think back to their favorite earliest film, it's some there was something in it that jolted them, that frightened them, and then they come to love it. Okay, over here. Oh, thanks. Oh, so she thought it was a great adaptation of the book, and then she just wants to, you to say a little bit about the difference between stop motion and live action. Um, yeah, anyone who 
who's not aware, I mean, um, it's kind of all the same elements of live action, except the uh, actors, the ones you see on the screen, are, are puppets. They're, they're no different than the original King Kong or Gumby, um, Jack Skellington. They're, they're a frame at a time. They're reposed and photographed. And uh, these, these animators that I work, work with are fantastic actors themselves, and they do a performance through these puppets. And, and uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, unlike all the other types of animation where there's key poses, whether it's in uh, CG or 2D drawn like the old Disney stuff, then there's assistants that do in-betweens or computers that do in-betweens. This is sort of an actual performance where the animator starts on this side of the chasm and they have to you know, dance across the tightrope and, and, and survive to the other side. So it's all real stuff in miniature, um, all done, uh, you know, manipulated one frame at a time, and then played back. How big would a is like a Coraline puppet? You know, if she was on the, she, could she fit up? Coraline is, um, I think she's nine inches tall. Wow. She's the star. We kind of decide what's the best scale. You want her as as small as you can make her, so that the animator can get two hands around her and sort of coax her to life but large enough so you can go in and do a close-up. Do you do any live-action photography as a guide? You know, the way, so, there are a lot of animators in history who have done that, but from the Fleischer brothers up to some of the motion capture techniques used now? Um, we, we don't shoot stuff and then, and then you know, go over it. Right. Um, that's, that, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. There's a, it, it deadens the animation. But... Some animators, um, there's people in the studio who would act things out. They would study. Um, there's, you know, you do sketches. Uh, there was one animator, Ian, who had this uncanny ability that he could act out th- these characters. He would, he would, and he would lip sync his own mouth to a, what had been recorded by Terry Hatcher, Dakota Fanning, and he was like a living cartoon. He's he's the only one. He filmed himself. And then he used that as sort of a, a guide. But sometimes we would cut in his own performances into the film because he was so funny and fantastic. <laughs> okay, I think we just have time for one more. So, right, last one. You have the most active hand. Uh, when do the voices come in? Uh, and you have a great voice cast in this film. Um, yeah, the tradition in animation is, is always you start with the voices. You, you, you want to um, cast the voices, record... Uh, make your selections of takes and cut them together because they become an important inspiration and guide for animation. You're doing the voice. You're doing the voice first, recording the voice first. Yeah, we, we, we record the voice first. Occasionally there'll be something, um, you know, because it takes a long time, you tend to rewrite lines, you think you've got a better one six months after the fact. You can't get the actor because they're in China making a film, so you know, you'll, you'll use um, someone in the studio will, will, will do a voice, you'll animate to it, and then, then they come in and dub. But that's 1% of uh, dialogue. Okay, well, we all enjoyed the film tonight. I know you, you have to wait five years before you enjoy it, but, uh, but thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, thanks for coming. I appreciate the support. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. 
To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.